Welcome to Design Talk. I'm Alan Higgins. Our guest for this episode is Suzanne Brennan from Instech.ie. Instech is a member community founded to accelerate innovation in Ireland's insurance industry. We talked about the end-to-end process of conducting industry sector research and applying the design thinking paradigm to solve pressing challenges, leading to organisation and market transformation. This interview took place in person in the UCD Lachlan Quinn School of Business with first-year economics and finance students on Tuesday the 14th of November 2023. So hi guys, my name is Joe. And uh, my name is Adam. I'd just like to reiterate that we're delighted to have Suzanne Brennan with us today. Um, Just to start quickly, Suzanne, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Instech as well, please? Sure, yeah. Uh, First of all, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. This is very different to my day-to-day life, Um, so thank you. Um, Yeah, so in terms of me and my career, I've worked across lots of different industries um, over the years and mainly in change implementation. I worked in PayPal when it was first established in Ireland, long, long time ago. Um, And I was there for three years and I worked um, as a product specialist there dealing with a lot of the website releases and product releases that PayPal would have had back then. I also worked helping to implement the Garda radio network and the prison radio network, which involved going into Garda stations, going into prisons, Um, and working with them and helping to implement those changes. Um, And more recently, I've worked in insurance and since 2011, working across all types of change. So website releases, product changes, new products, new propositions, new technology systems, organizational changes, all types of change. And I led teams who were involved in in managing change within insurance. I joined instech.ie last year as innovation lead and that really came from my work in the insurance industry and change but also my background in innovation anthropology and design thinking so back in 2019 I completed a master's in design innovation which was all about design thinking and all about trying to do the wonderful things that the likes of IDEO have done and my interest in design came from really an interest in people and in how people behave and in what works well for people and what doesn't work well for people. Like David Kelly in the video there said, design is everywhere, you know, you see it all around you. It's in everything that you see, but it's also in everything that you don't see. So, so much is designed, services are designed, processes are designed, um, and we often don't see the design that happens, but it, it is everywhere. And that really interested me. So now I work with instech.ie as innovation lead. I work with insurance companies trying to make them more innovative, trying to look at the different success factors within their companies that can help them to be more innovative and looking at the capabilities that they need to build um, in order to be more innovative. Instech.ie works with insurance companies and insurtechs and all other parts of the insurtech ecosystem or the insurance ecosystem. So that involves the regulator, research centers, universities, the insurtechs themselves, the insurance companies themselves. And we try to bring them all together to collaborate to help move insurance forward um, and, and kind of push it into the future a little bit more. Wow, that's actually a lot of interesting points there. Uh, Would you be able to give us a little sketch of the insurance sector in Ireland? Sure, yeah. Um, So it's it's a pretty big industry. 
as of this year, I think there are around 180 or over 180 insurance companies and reinsurance companies in Ireland, which probably sounds like a lot. Some of them you've definitely heard of. A lot of them you probably haven't heard of. Some of them are focused on the Irish market. Some of them are focused more internationally and looking at the, the wider global markets. It employs over 35,000 people in Ireland directly, which is a lot. And it, it contributes a lot to the Irish exchequer. It's an important part of the financial services, the wider financial services in Ireland. But I think, and certainly at Instec, we feel um, it, it too often gets bundled in with the rest of financial services when insurance has a lot of its own unique challenges. It has functions within it and use cases within it that don't exist across the rest of the financial services. Um, and they sometimes get lost in the conversations and in, in training and capability building. But yeah, it definitely has very unique challenges. And when it comes to innovation, it has very unique challenges. Interesting. So uh, the insurance sector definitely wouldn't uh, traditionally be considered quite an innovative sector. You know, it's highly regulated and there's definitely quite a few um, dominant established firms. So would you be able to walk us through a few of those challenges for the sector from an innovation perspective, please? Yeah, I mean, the insurance industry has been around a really, really long time. A lot of the insurance companies have been around for a really long time. And I think a lot of the challenges um, lie in in that, in that they have a lot of legacy. They have a lot of legacy systems, old, old systems uh, that look really old and they're really clunky and they're really not easy to use and they're really not easy to change uh, and they're really expensive to change. So that's definitely a huge problem when it comes to, to innovation and um, when a lot of innovation is, is related to technology. There's also a lot of legacy thinking, um, a huge part of, innovation is about culture and mindset and having that right culture and mindset for innovation. And I think you probably saw a lot of that in, in the video there, um, in IDEO's video. And insurance companies, because they have been around a long time and because they have been very risk averse, necessarily risk averse, um, they, they don't have that culture and that mindset that's conducive to innovation. And that can be a real challenge, getting them to shift their mindset. The, the great thing is, is that I think a lot of companies now realize that they have to shift their mindset and they have to shift the culture to be a lot more innovative, but that's a really difficult thing to do. Um, and innovation requires failure and failing fast, and insurance companies don't like to fail. So it's quite difficult to, to encourage innovation when you can't test and learn and fail. Um, and I, I think, you know, there is also the, the factor of the regulator. I think a lot of people sometimes use that as an excuse as to why we can't innovate as an industry. It's, it's not a reason not to innovate. It's just a part of the puzzle, really. It's just a factor within the, the greater problem. Um, and, and it is a challenge, but it's definitely not uh, a reason not to innovate. And Suzanne, how would you say the industry is responding to disruptive technologies at the moment? Pretty well, I think, like having listed the challenges previously and um, all of those legacy systems that they have, they are tricky to, to work with. Um, but the industry now recognizes that they need to partner with other people um, in order to, to embrace new technologies. So there's a lot more partnership between insurance companies and insure techs to deliver um, 
to work with new technologies to deliver solutions that are really, really important and really positive for customers. Um, things like telematics, a lot of insurance companies don't develop their telematics programs themselves or their telematics solutions themselves. They buy them in from other companies. They partner with other companies. Some other examples, leak bots. I don't know if you've heard of leak bots in homes. So homes can now be fitted with a leak bot that detects leaks in your home before you ever knew they were there. That means that the damage is limited when it comes to the leak because you can fix it before it, it spreads or it becomes a big problem. Um, Insurance companies don't develop those themselves. They buy them from other companies. They partner with other companies. Um, lots of, of medical tech on the health insurance side. So insurance companies are definitely recognizing that they need to use new technologies. They can't always build them themselves because they don't have the, the resources or the capability. So they partner with others. Um, and we're seeing a huge interest in AI, as you might imagine, especially since ChatGPT was launched. I think the morning ChatGPT was launched, all of a sudden, everybody wanted to know more about AI and everybody started panicking that they don't know enough about AI. Um, so we're definitely seeing a huge, huge interest in that and insurers looking at the opportunities and what they can start using AI for. Yeah, it's interesting talking about those new opportunities and looking towards the future for the industry. You guys recently launched a report focusing on the future of insurance in Ireland. Um, what was the motivation behind this project? Yeah, we, we wanted to first, firstly understand what the future of insurance might look like um, and what capabilities might be needed for the future of insurance and for insurance to continue to be successful and for insurance companies to continue to be successful. So. We also, after recognizing what we needed for the next two to five years, we also wanted to know where the insurance company was at at the moment in terms of those future-focused capabilities. So the likes of AI, the likes of design thinking, where were their capability levels at in relation to that? Um, and really, the, the driver of all of this is we want to build capability in the industry. We want to to get the industri industry as a whole to be more innovative uh, and to be more focused on the future. So that involves looking at key capabilities like, like AI, like design thinking, but also leadership capabilities. The leadership of today and the leadership of 20, whatever five years is from now, 2028, um, you know, that that's very, very different to the leadership of 10 years ago. Um, and the capabilities that leaders need are very, very different. So we wanted to unpick all that and bring all that to the surface uh, for insurance companies. And also, like I said earlier, insurance tends to get bundled in with the financial services as a whole. And you know, other people have done reports on financial services as a whole. We wanted to, to look specifically at insurance and how insurance might change in the future and what capabilities would be needed specifically for insurance. Uh, going back to the topic of AI for a second, would you kind of say, let's say 20 years from now, AI would be a big game changer like in the industry of insurance? Like, what, what kind of effects could it actually have on the industry as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, AI is going to affect all industries, I think, including insurance. Um, a lot of what we talk about is the opportunity in terms of the advice that AI can give, when you're buying insurance, you know, that kind of thing that, that we won't need advisors anymore. 
AI will be our advisor um, when it comes to buying insurance. But there's lots of other areas. Um, there's parametric insurance that um, works on setting parameters for, um, for claims to be paid out. So an example is a travel insurance policy that might be parametric that as soon as a flight is cancelled, you get the money back in your account. There's no need for you to claim. There's no um, form to fill out. There's no questions asked. It just gets paid out. And that already exists now. That's the future of insurance. The whole process for the customer will be seamless beginning to end and won't need any intervention. Um, the majority, you'll always have those cases, I think, that will need some sort of human intervention and should have some sort of human intervention. There's another one where if you drop your phone, the phone recognizes that it's dropped and your screen is cracked and you get payment into your account straight away uh, because you're insured to pay for a new screen. Things like that are, you know, AI is, is all a part of that. Um, but things like that show that we can now do that. So the possibility in 20 years is unbelievable. Yeah, it seems like exciting times. Uh, would you be able to talk us through the research design, like the methodology, that entire process? Yeah, so when we, when we decided to do the report, um, first of all, we, we brought together a group of talent leaders from across the industry, a talent working group. Um, and we brought them together back in March to, to hold a workshop to really understand what we wanted to understand about the industry and really um, you know, get a better understanding of what we wanted to achieve with the survey and with the research that we were doing. Um, and we then spoke with leaders from across the industry individually on a one-to-one -one basis. And that helped us to get a better understanding of the challenges that they've faced over the last few years, what their priorities are over the next few years, what struggles they've had building capability, what struggles they've had recruiting certain um, capabilities. And it allowed us to really do a bit of a deep dive into um, the whole subject of talent within the, the insurance industry. Um, those interviews as well then gave us the information we needed for our survey. So from the interviews and from desk research that we did, we came up with a list of 78 capabilities that we wanted to, wanted the insurance industry to rate themselves on. And those 78 capabilities came out of our interviews, came out of our desk research. And we then designed the survey with the 78 capabilities. We broke them down into nine categories so that it was easier to answer because asking someone to, to rate them their company on 78 different areas is quite a daunting task. So we broke it down into, into more bite-sized chunks. We tested the survey with our talent working group to make sure that it was user-friendly, to make sure that it, it wasn't a pain to fill in. We made some tweaks. We then sent the survey out to companies across the country, insurance companies and brokers, and collated the results, looked at patterns in the data that we got back, and we made some assumptions based on the data that we got back. One of the important parts of the process was that once we made those assumptions, we went back to people and asked them where our assumptions correct, and in some cases they weren't. So. It was really important that we did that, and I'm really glad that we did do that, because some of the assumptions we made from the data, it was actually just down to how people interpreted a question or 
how people approached the survey and what questions they felt were more important than others. So that was a really, really important part of the process. And then we pulled it all together, pulled all of our research together from the interviews, from the desk research, from the survey, and we created a, a report for the industry. It's really interesting to hear that, how that process unfolded throughout the, um, throughout the process. So I just wonder if you'd be able to expand on why you started with those insights and interviews rather than going with the traditional survey or questionnaires first. Yeah, sure. Um, surveys definitely have a place in research. They, they are important. I personally think they're used a bit too much. I think I'd say we all get a survey probably every day emailed to us or texted to us or, you know, they're just, they're everywhere. And I think the quality of the data that you get back is quite limited with a survey. The interviews gave us an opportunity to really dig deeper with people on the questions. An answer that somebody gave might trigger another question. And it really meant that we could get richer, deeper insight. What you tend to get with a survey is numbers or yes and no. And you know, you get that, that quantitative data, but you don't get the qualitative stuff. And a lot of the time, people will put in verbatim text boxes that you can fill in to get some, some more insight. But really, you don't get much from those either. Um, so we went with interviews first so we could understand, get a richer understanding of the challenges and the priorities in terms of capability building across the industry. And then we used the survey to get the numbers. So to understand how many companies across the country felt this was a challenge and to understand where companies, what the average rating was across certain capabilities. So the survey was important, but really the rich, deeper insights come from the interviews. I see, so you mentioned there that surveys and questionnaires mostly kind of give quantitative data instead of qualitative. Would you kind of say that they have any use? Like, are they really useful? Definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, surveys and, and questionnaires is really good at identifying opportunities. So, you know, if you know that only 25% of insurance companies in Ireland have any AI capability, you know that's a big opportunity. Um, you know it's also a big risk, probably, because given AI is, is the way the world is going. So it does give you numbers. It gives you, it, it gives you that, it sizes the opportunity or the threat for you, you know? But in terms of how to approach fixing that, you need to go deeper and you need to, to do deeper research and you need to talk to people and you need to get an understanding of people and what they need. But the surveys give you that starting point. They also help validate what you already know or what you think you already know. So a lot of the, the research that we did, you know, nothing earth shattering came out of it. We knew a lot of it already, but the survey gave us that validation of what we already knew. And for the insurance industry, they want validation, they want numbers, they want to see the, the figures behind your, your homework, you know. Um, so it was really important for, particularly for our industry, that we did it. But yeah, there's a place definitely for surveys. I just think we shouldn't rely solely on them for research. So after doing such a big body of work, it's always interesting to reflect on how that went. Would you be able to walk us through what went well for you guys and maybe what you might change were you to go at it again? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, definitely what worked well was having that talent working group. 
there from the beginning, a group of experts and, and also a group made up of the people who would be answering our survey. So we could design the survey always with them in mind. So that was really, really important, really valuable to us. Also, things like testing the survey, that worked well because before we released it out to the wider audience, our working group did spot changes that they would make, uh, tweaks that they would make, so that was, that was really important. Going back to them after we'd made the assumptions was something that initially wasn't in the plan, and I'm really glad we did it because it saved us from making mistakes. Um, and it saved us from from putting stuff in the report that just wasn't true. So I'm really glad that we went back uh, and checked with them. And in terms of what we'd do different, I think if I was to do this again, I would do a lot more interviews. I would talk to more people for a few different reasons. The insurance industry in Ireland is quite varied. We've lots of different types of insurance companies. We've large companies, small companies, personal lines, commercial lines, health insurance, life insurance, all sorts. And they all have very different needs. They're all at very different places in their innovation journeys. And I would have liked to understand a bit more about that um, from a wider group. Talking to people also gets them much more engaged in what you're doing. So the people who we spoke to were the first ones to respond to the survey because we already had them interested in what we were doing. So if we had spoken to more people, we would have had much more engagement and we would have had more responses. So that's the one thing I would change. And uh, essentially, you and your team, the report you guys conducted, it was aimed at capability building in the industry. How do you imagine a member organization will act on the findings? Yeah, I think there are very key themes that come out of the the research and that are in the report. We have given each individual company their own individual report that shows where they rated themselves compared to where the rest of the industry are rated. So that gives them some very, very clear areas for opportunity. I think there's more to do in terms of each individual company understanding what that means for them. So for example, if one of the capabilities that they need to work on is robotics, I think rather than just send everyone out on a robotics course, they need to understand what is their appetite for robotics, what's within their strategy, they need to understand what their priorities are, and, and understand their particular needs before rushing off and, and acting on the findings in, in the report. But it does give them very key areas to look at and it also shows them where they might be ahead of the rest of the industry and where they might be behind. It's very interesting to look how innovative thinking was used in that report. However, I just wonder more broadly, how can design thinking as a whole be used to enact and enable organizational change and transformation? So design thinking is, I mean, it's really about designing for people. It's, it's a human-centered approach to problem solving. So it's all about people and I think when you look at organizational change and transformation, the examples that I've seen of it being done badly is when people weren't factored in enough and when the problem wasn't understood enough. So I think you know, a, a huge part of design thinking is about understanding the people and understanding the problem. And that's a huge part of organizational change and transformation as well. So it, it does fit nicely with that. 
I think there's also another huge part of design thinking is prototyping and testing. And again, that's something that can be done in, in organizational change and transformation. So I think when you take the different elements of design thinking, you can very, very easily apply them to, to organizational change and transformation. But for me, the key is that people element um, and not making assumptions, really talking to people, understanding people, understanding the work they do, understanding their priorities and how change might affect them. And, and once you've, you've got a much better understanding of that, your change and your transformation will be much more effective. Uh, going into the people aspect of kind of the team, would you say that diversity is an important part of the creative process and was it something you paid particular attention to? It is, absolutely. Um, it's, really it's a really important part of the creative process. I think for too long in the world of design, we've seen the same types of people being involved in the creative process and very little diversity. And we're really seeing how the negative effects of that now, you know, when you don't have a mix of gender, of race, of ability, of thinking, when you don't have that mix in the room when you're designing, you get the same types of products being designed or the same types of processes being designed for the same types of people. You do need that diversity of not just backgrounds, but also thinking. You need people that think in different ways. You need people who have different preferences because the world is made up of people, of different people. So you need, you need decent representation. Yeah, definitely. I think as well, it's also good to have people who aren't experts in the room in the creative process. You know, quite often we go straight to experts for, for advice and for, um, for ideas on things. Sometimes bringing someone in who knows nothing about what you're doing is really, really valuable because it gives you that outsider's view that hasn't been tainted by the work that you're doing, hasn't been tainted by the research, hasn't been tainted by being in the industry for 25 years. And particularly when it comes to insurance, we have a lot of people who are in the industry a long time. So you need that fresh thinking, you need that outsider's viewpoint and diversity, yeah, it's, it's massively important. I'd just like to touch on the role of leadership. So nowadays, that old model of, of leadership would be quite defunct. You know, we would no longer assume that, say, the boss would always be the person with all the ideas or all the answers. So nowadays, uh, is there still a role for a leader and what would it be? Yeah, definitely. And, and it's a really good thing that that's changing, that, um, that we don't see it as the leader has all the answers anymore. But there definitely is still a role for the leader. I think it's more in enabling people and encouraging people rather than the person who has all the answers or the person who has all the best answers. And I think for leaders, it's about that shift from being a leader being about your ego to being a leader being about the greater good um, and the end goal. And that is quite a big shift because typically we always, you know, leaders would be people who were very confident and very um, driven and very uh, authoritative and that idea of leadership thankfully is changing now it's about giving your people that safety that space to come up with great ideas to to collaborate well to be curious um, and I think one of the one of the really important things that leaders need to do is to give their people time and space to be creative, to be curious, 
to look outside of the organization for ideas. And it's up to the leaders to, to give them that. And unfortunately, that still is a challenge because everybody is stuck for time. Everybody has bandwidth issues. But yeah, for me, if there's one thing that leaders could do that bit better, I think it's give their people that time to be more curious and, and be more creative. And uh, when you're in a creative environment and uh, during the creative process, psychological safety must be a really important part of uh, the entire kind of process as a whole, uh, considering that it is a team effort. It would require the team to listen and withhold immediate judgment so that kind of ideas are properly considered and like kind of gone through in detail. How do you facilitate this kind of process? Yeah, psychological safety is really important when you're asking people to be creative because being creative puts you in quite a vulnerable position. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you're offering up your own ideas, you're offering up your own creations to criticism from a wider group, and that can feel very vulnerable. So it's important that everyone on the team feels safe and feels that they can offer up their own ideas and their own creations. In terms of how you can facilitate it, a lot of it is down to culture and just making sure that the culture is one that is a safe environment. Um, but within workshops, we do it through a number of different ways. Like, setting out um, ground rules at the start around that everybody has a voice, that everyone's ideas are appreciated, um, that everyone's ideas are valid, that everything everyone has to say is, is valid and shouldn't be interrupted. In ideation sessions, what works really, really well is just getting people to come up with tons and tons of ideas because they then don't get so precious about any one idea. Um, and asking them to come up with wild ideas and crazy ideas and rubbish ideas and all different types of ideas, it takes that, that, that threat away or that importance away from any one single idea. So it, it helps them to just put more and more out there and be more and more creative. Um, I think as well, thinking carefully about who's in the room when you're doing those kind of sessions Sometimes when you have the project sponsor in the room when you're coming up with ideas, it can really hamper ideation. Um, sometimes having someone with a big personality in the room can hamper ideas. So thinking through all of those little things, it, it can, can be really important. Yeah, so it's clear that having the right culture can be very important towards that creative process. And it's also something to point out that creativity and motivation will often be interlinked. So you want people with that creative ability and the desire and motiv motivation to create something that's you know, beautiful and new, but also fundamentally uh, useful. So how do you identify and then motivate those creative uh, people and how do you just, just generally support that creative process? In terms of identifying them, as a leader, it's about knowing your people really well, knowing the ones who are naturally curious, knowing the ones who like to experiment with things. Um, who do bring in ideas from the outside into the team, who do bring ideas from the outside into the company, um, and spotting those people. Or often, people who are creative in one aspect of their life tend to be quite creative in others. So, you know, if people, if you know that people on your team have interests in creativity, then chances are they're probably quite creative people. Um, so even though it might be art that they do or drama that they do or whatever, you know, typically that means that they're quite a creative person and that will translate into creating processes, creating products. 
in terms of how you encourage it and nurture it, it is about giving them that psychological safety. It is about giving them that time to be curious. It's about making sure that you're encouraging them, encouraging their ideas, even if the, the ideas don't go far. Just the fact that they had them and they came up with them and they came to you with them, you still need to, to celebrate that. Often companies celebrating success and failure is really, really good. And it's a good way of making sure that people keep coming to you with ideas because sometimes if someone's had something that hasn't worked, that stops them from doing anything else. That's really, really bad. Um, so it's important that it's, it's acknowledged that even though it hasn't gone the full distance, it was still a good thing that they did. So as, a, as, a, as an organization, it's really, really good to celebrate successes and, and failures and for everyone to learn from them. But yeah, I think, I think it's really important that leaders know their teams and know what people on their teams are interested in. Also, creativity, a lot of people don't think that they're creative, um, but creativity isn't a dark art. It's not something that you, um, you know, that you're either creative or you're not. You can exercise it, you can exercise your creativity, and everyone has creativity in them. So I think as well, that's important for leaders to not go, that person's my creative person, I rely on you for all my ideas, I rely on you for everything to do with creativity. It's important that they, they um, encourage it within the team as a whole as well, and flex that creative muscle um, as a whole. And just to turn it to the audience for a second, would uh, anyone have a question? Uh, I'm Michael. And just to touch on what you're saying about how everyone can exercise their creativity, uh, and obviously it comes more naturally to some, some people than others, but I'm wondering, like, are there certain ways you can develop your creativity? Yes, definitely. When I run ideation workshops, we usually start with an exercise at the start to just help get the creative juices flowing. And it's a bit of a silly exercise, but um, it's worthwhile. And it's just where we take random objects and match them with each other and come up with a new product that incorporates those two objects. It's, it's simple, uh, but, but it is effective. It just helps to, to flex that muscle. Some other ideas are, you know, you take something like a nine inch nail and you ask people to come up with 20 different uses for the nine inch nail. So there, there's little tricks and tips and, and things like that, but really just getting out of your day to day when it comes to working in an organization, getting out of your day to day and doing something a little bit different, play, like again, David Kelly was talking about, play is so important to the creative process. Just having that opportunity to use a different part of your brain and to look at things a bit differently. Um, I also sometimes bring in boxes of Lego because that helps. <laughs> Hi, my name's Anintha. So I was wondering, aside from, well, creativity, are there other important skill sets that you should acquire in order to secure a position in this design innovation industry? Yeah, I think it, they're probably somewhat related to creativity, but um, I think it's important to be very action-oriented. So sometimes we think of creativity as just coming up with lots of ideas, but really you have to do something with them. And a huge part of the design process is around prototyping and testing and building your idea and testing it out and not spending too much time on the thinking side of things to actually get stuck in and build something. So, so, so that's a huge part. Again, it's, it's still creativity. I think looking at data in new ways 
drawing patterns in data, you know, that, that getting really rich insights out of data is a really important part of the design thinking process. Being able to look at all of the information that you've gathered in your research and join the dots and see the patterns in, in the information. So that's a really important skill that you need for design thinking, I think. Um, also, there's a huge amount of stuff on the testing side of things that you could go into around how to conduct tests, how to conduct effective tests that give you the right information. Yeah, curiosity is a big one. Okay, I think we'll uh, wrap it up there. Uh, thanks again for talking with us today and sharing your knowledge and expertise. It was a really informative um, chat today and I think it leaves us all with uh, a lot of food for thought. Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Design Talk. Follow the pod and share if you found it interesting. The music is Voltaic Fluctuations by Ben Prunty and used with his permission. 